Hey everyone, this is Nicole Ashley Fletcher. I hope that you had a wonderful week or weekend or whenever you're listening to this. I'm so excited to be with you today in the spirit for the next half hour or so. If you are new to a grafting story, welcome. I encourage you to listen back to chapter one, Horticultural Theology, so that we can you know, continue our learning together and have a good foundation to build on where we're going. The content can be kind of dense if this is a totally new topic. So use the musical interludes as meditative breaks or breaths uh, or just permission to pause and return back another day. And since this project has started, I've been blessed to capture you know, these little bits of what God is doing in people's lives all over the place. So thank you if you've shared with me what the Holy Spirit is revealing to you these days. Just want to share another one today for our collective encouragement. One listener wrote, as I was listening to this, God was bringing back to life dreams that I thought were dead. Yes, and amen. Would that happen all over the place in Jesus' name? So let's get into it. This is chapter three, Supernatural Selection, Darwin, Jesus, and the Great Intervention. Many of us see adoption simply as a way some choose to grow their family here on earth. But God sees adoption as our divine heritage. How every person who claims Jesus as Savior and Lord becomes a member of the bloodline of heaven itself and becomes grafted into his family tree. So while this is the oldest story of all time, it's becoming new all over again for us. May it become so for you too. I'm Nicole Ashley Fletcher. Welcome to A Grafting Story, a retelling of God's adopted family and a new telling of ours. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was just a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, he was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, but even they rejected him. But to all who believed, who accepted him, he gave the right the privilege to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. John 1, 6 to 13. The story of Jesus in the manger that we know about at Christmas time, it started before time did. In John 1, the biblical author places Jesus outside of time and inside the Trinity of God. The word that was once read by the people becomes one of the people. Verse 14 says that this uncreated Jesus became human and made his home with us. The very God we were wondering about, is he close? Does he care? Does he care about me? 
this God we cursed for seeming so far away, decides not to give us advice, not to acquire more knowledge or platform to help us, not to throw resources at the problem, but to step in, to become. I've thought a lot about this over the last year. You know, God's entrance into human form, it could have taken on any shape he wanted and planned from the beginning. He could have descended as a warrior. He could have emerged from the temple cloud in priestly garments. He could have descended from a mountain in a Moses-inspired performance, but he chose to be born. Of course, he needed to fulfill the prophecies about who the Messiah was and how he would come, but he decided what that would be long ago. He decided that being carried inside a woman's womb and being subject to the very fragile ecosystem called family would be just right. The way that God chose to enter our world is important. (laughs) Of all the systems in this world, the family system is the environment in which the Savior wants us to follow him into. Because Jesus, he's all about intimacy, reconciliation together in a way that makes us uncomfortable. I mean, think about communion. Eat my body, he says. Drink my blood. I mean, this is an inside job. And he doesn't settle for anything less. And few environments are more intimate than family. It's where you're both your best and your worst self. It's where your bed is where your first memories are, and where your sense of security should be. If you look at current research, it's the place in which identity, the very building blocks of the human psyche and experience are formed. You can't escape it. So however wonderful or terrible that is to each person, Jesus enters into it. You know, he doesn't sit first on library steps or preach from a hilltop The one who gave and sustains all human life drinks milk from his mother's breast. The one who is the word learns to form words. He validates our human experience and he gives us a template of how we were meant to grow up and into our truest selves. And there's wisdom hidden in the ordinary ins and outs of family life. And if we're leaders, pastors, influencers, prophets, artists, advocates, whatever, you know, and we don't consider the microcosm of belonging and intimacy, you know, what the scriptures might refer to as family, as the very beginning and our timely end, we will never have a true experience with the Son of Man or the Son of God. And we won't lead anyone into it either. But there's something more than that. Something that makes us not want to make interpersonal family spirituality a topic or certainly not a centerfold. You know, we don't like to get too close. We like to go on missions trips for a week so that we can have an experience 
know, that eventually becomes a bullet point on a resume or, or we sponsor a child giving money to someone else to feed them, clothe them and educate them. And, and please mis- like, don't misunderstand. I mean, I do both of those things. <laughs> so they're good things. But the whole point is that the gospel of adoption is so revolutionary because it demands nothing less than total intimacy, total risk total heartbreak, total dependency, skin to skin, day in and day out. I love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. And thankfully, our God lives forever. So the way that we define family, the words that we have attached to it, and the definitions, boundaries, and ideas we have ascribed to our own rebirth as children of God, they, they need a closer look. So I want to bring to the table today the notion of natural. So what do you think of when you hear that word, natural? Well, uh, I mean, for me, I've noticed this in in all kinds of ways in myself, Uh, the arrogance around what is natural, maybe. You know, I I saw it in myself when I mourned giving up my dreams of a home birth (laughs) to be bedridden in the hospital for five weeks, given more drugs and intervention than I ever imagined to bring my baby girl into the world, a miracle that I still wrestle shame over. You know, I... I experienced it in, in, you know, the shame of unnaturally choosing to bottle feed. You know, I, I see it in conversations around diet, healthcare, technology, education. And I love these conversations because, you know, I think they're challenging and they can push us to rethink what we've always thought or, or even what our natural bodies are capable of or what's been stripped from us. But You know, as a woman who's had a C-section birth, bottle fed her baby, enjoys both essential oils and over-the-counter medication, I cannot help but wonder where these tricky biases around natural being pure and superior has leaked into our theology. Our brains might light up when we think of all natural, but the Bible uses another word to describe our natural state or our natural tendencies. It's referred to as our flesh or the sin nature, which is one of those words that can make any human being uncomfortable and upset because, you know, it tells us that we did something wrong or more than that, that something about us is wrong. That left to our own natural devices, we have, we do, and will continue to desire not the things of God, which are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, but instead desire things that send us on a trajectory into decay. But like we talked about in chapter one, we are not separate from creation, but a part of it, dependent on it. So if God is the vine and we're the branches, then anything other than a dependent connection just means death. It sounds harsh, but we see it every day. The fish comes out of the water, it dies. Your toddler rips your neighbor's flower from her garden, it dies. 
you cut off the air supply of an oxygen-dependent animal, it dies. The branch decides it wants to live apart from the root, it dies. Because we are, like creation is, destined for decay, Romans says. You know, a person, like the form of a person might be made from the ground, but Romans 8.10 actually says that that spiritual life that we have, it has to come from the spirit. Your body that's subject to death because of sin, well, the spirit, it gives life. Just like we learned back in Genesis when God breathed life into the human being. So even if, as Romans 6.23 says, the price or the natural consequence for sin, that willful desiring to live apart from the vine, to be separated, is death, then the free gift of everlasting life is in Jesus Christ our Lord, in Jesus, in him, in his body, in his rootstock, in his life giving nature. But if this wasn't enough, you know, if we don't just want to be all natural or work towards a natural state or fight for our, for remaining in our natural state, you know, or thinking about it as superior to any kind of help, God forbid, or intervention, then we want to categorize it or label it, label anything we can, well, anything that we can see at least. And it's actually a fundamental part of who we are. Scientists say that we rely on our eyes more than any other sense to tell us who is who, who's related to who, and how things should be grouped. So we group plants and animals based on what they look like. It's one of the first things you learn to do no matter what culture you live in. But the tricky part is microbiologists tell us that our yearning to touch and see and classify the natural world around us, it falls apart when it comes at least to life too small to see. So let's talk about that life that's too small to see. Biological, cellular life in particular. So Charles Darwin in the mid-1800s, he developed what we now know as the theory of biological evolution. He wrote this book, maybe you've heard of it, The Origin of Species, and it transformed our very way of thinking of our own origins, of our own identity and purpose. And the two basic ideas of his theory were this. Number one, all living things are connected, related, and rely on one another. And two, modifications of entire populations are based on the environment by natural selection, or what may be more popularly described as survival of the fittest. Now, there's two kinds of evolution. There's microevolution, you know, so for example, like a bird on the coast, uh, like the shoreline of somewhere in the world uh, over a few hundred years, um, maybe that beach or that coastline has uh, transformed, you know, from being mainly sandy to having a lot more rock formations. And so that bird who lives on that shoreline has had to evolve, has had to be transformed. So it's 
beak has become sharper and skinnier so that it can fit in between those rocks to get food that is becoming harder and harder to get. That's an example of microevolution, a small kind of, or like in a time frame, um, and in a smaller capacity that, uh, like within a species, that um, animal or plant or life form has micro evolved. And this is so beautiful and it's necessary. And it's actually such a great nod to our own spiritual transformation that continues to take place in Christ over time. I mean, how many of us have been on the metaphorical beach and discovered rocks instead of sand? We have to micro evolve. And then there's macro evolution, and it has a little less factual evidence to go off of, and it can upset a lot of people who think Darwin was trying to write out God of the picture of creation altogether. And as a, a scientist and an academic, you know, micro evolution, um, or sorry, macro evolution, specifically the part when humans evolved from apes, it doesn't yet have enough factual evidence for me to put my whole faith of human origin in. A side note, if you are a person of faith in Jesus, there is a lot of actual evidence to base your belief off of. So send me a message if you're curious about that. But then at the same time, I don't know, my mind starts to go when I read that creation story and understand a little bit more about the dust of the earth that we were formed out of. Understanding the the millions of uh, microorganisms that continue to change and evolve within that very dirt that we were formed. Understanding the scriptures that say that to God, a day, it's like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like a day. So who knows? Maybe our entrance into the world took a lot longer than a biblical narrative. But that's a uh, tangent for another time. <laughs> um, but Darwin's theory of natural selection, it was incredibly informed by the political climate of the time, which was all about competition, conquest, strong versus weak. Either you're the biological best or you get cut off and destroyed. But in this process of transformation, there was another botanist in the early 1900s, and he coined this term called symbiogenesis. And so instead of competition-driven processes, there was new evidence of a more collaborative and strategic partnership between these small cellular life forms. And then later... Scientist Lynn Margulies, who was the only female in her field at that time, continued to challenge Darwin's idea in the 70s and the 80s as she studied the evolution of multicellular life, saying there was way more partnership, collaboration, mutuality than we were ever aware of in the process of biological transformation. But either way you look at it, we can either conclude that based on evolutionary theory alone, that you and I and the whole of the human race are either chosen and selected based on being the best and baddest or the most cooperative and flexible. But the way that we look at something, it's important. There are different ways of knowing. 
Western thinking is traditionally oppositional. It's either this or that. It's black or it's white. But Hebraic, tribal, or indigenous ways of knowing, they're more complex. It's both and. It's together also. But the point is that there's movement beyond both of these desires of likeness and belonging. With Jesus, there's always a third way. There's something beyond competition and even collaboration when it comes to being chosen and changed. But how does this happen? How does a branch that was cast to the ground become a part of a living, breathing tree? How can we, who are not by nature like God, get to be recognized, justified, baptized, and glorified as children of God? By ourselves? By nature? Well, Colossians 1 said, It pleased the Father for all the fullness, essence, perfection, powers, characteristics, everything about him to dwell in the Son, Jesus, and through the intervention of him to reconcile all things, making peace through his blood on the cross. So that destiny of the tree, that tree that eventually, if left to its own natural devices, would die and be subject to decay, as Romans says, it's interrupted by the intervention of the gardener. And in the same breath, the destiny of the human being who left to his or her own natural devices is interrupted by the intervention of Jesus. Grafting inserts itself in the process of tree growing. We frown on intervention, but it's intervention that saves us. How can this play out in our own lives and families? Because the reality of a mutually beneficial relationship, it doesn't always play out when we're afraid. So we ask not for relationship, but for assimilation. You know, it's more comfortable for me if you're like me. History in, you know, even in this country, Canada alone has been blanketed by erasure. Oftentimes, using Christianity, sadly, as the mobilizing weapon to not just cut people off entirely from their ethnicity, history, and pain, but then expect them to be thankful instead of traumatized. 
But let me tell you this. When God adopts people into his family, it is not with the intent of erasure. It is clear the Bible says that we have to lose our lives to save them. Yes, but this has to do with erasing where we put our allegiances, not what makes us beautifully human. Somebody needs to hear that today. We have to, to lose our lives, yes, to save them, but this has to do with erasing where we put our allegiances, not what makes us beautifully human. We can be so narrow in North America that it would mystify us <laughs> to see how Christians all around the world worship Jesus outdoors, in villages, in drum circles, huddled in underground churches, chanting in mountain monasteries, gathered in prisons and mental health facilities and street corners and riversides. And he not only celebrates and elevates the wide variety and expressions of our individuality, but he requires it to be so for the sake of the full manifestation of his beauty and presence to be seen and known. But we don't just adopt and belong because of the good we can offer. We know that true belonging, it only comes when we can be our truest selves. Flaws, mistakes, basic, ordinary humanity, whatever, and still be seen, known, accepted, wanted, and loved. When I was adopted by Abba Father at 18 years old, he knew what he was getting himself into. He knew that I was riddled with shame. He knew that the childhood abuse that I survived would cause crippling anxiety and a loss of any sense of self I had. He knew that I would struggle to trust. He knew that I would develop impenetrable emotional armor like you could never have imagined. He knew that because of the death of my mother at a young age, I would struggle to have healthy attachments, to accept care from others. And instead, I would pour my energy into high achievement and a paralyzing fear of failure. But he wasn't embarrassed when I acted out and kept stumbling along the way. He didn't run when I screamed and cried out asking him why. And he didn't make side-eyed apologies and excuses to the archangels for me because, you know, I was adopted. He didn't rush me. He didn't guilt me into playing nice when I didn't have a fresh clue of who I was. But little by little, as I lived and got comfortable in the love of this God, wondering if he too would just use me, if he too would just want to be impressed by me, showing me off as an extension of his own pride. Slowly as I tested this love of my parent God, whose identity and steadfast goodness wasn't shaken or swayed by my moods, by my affections towards him or my ambitions in life or non-ambitions in life, <laughs> slowly I began to heal. Slowly I began to attach and trust and remove my armor to find new ways to be and dream and love. 
Slowly I have simply become because I have belonged. And even now, as I face fears and, you know, get triggered by hurts I didn't know were unresolved or I wake up empty and exhausted after a week or two of trying to earn the favor of God, forgetting that I can just lean back into it instead of working for it, I'm still becoming. And the grace that chose me has nothing to do with natural selection. I was not the smartest or the fittest or the strongest or the one with the most potential. I wasn't even the most collaborative. I was actually a lot of work. Certainly not someone's first choice, let alone the high king of all heaven's choice as he decided who was fittest and worthy of being welcomed and invested into. But maybe you're not like me. You don't have a you know, capital T trauma in your life. Maybe you've just silently struggled with anxiety over not being in control. So you've tried to control God and everyone you love. Maybe you've avoided any type of risk-taking. Or maybe you were constantly rewarded as a young person for being kind and easygoing. And now as an adult, you realize you don't quite know who you are or what you think about anything. Maybe you've harbored such unprocessed grief and anger in your heart that you have shut off the emotional valve of your soul entirely. But people just think you're a rational person, but you're not fooling God. You see, all kids, every last one of us, come with some kind of variety of baggage and we need the patient, enduring presence of a parent We all have access to a divinely loving one. And if we accept him, we have access to the power to help us become one. But what about the asterisks? You know, the loophole. Like, what if I didn't perform? What if I ran away? What if I wanted something other than what God was offering well, the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15 tells us that the father, he would honor my free will, my humanity, and with heart-wrenching devastation, he'd let me go. But you better believe with desperate prayers, a celebration feast waiting, and his eye always on the horizon, he would always be ready to run to me and welcome me back. And that is the kind of love that transforms. That's the supernatural love of God and the love he's called us into to build our lives on, our families and our churches on, not business transactions that say, I loved you and welcomed you so you better thank, accept, and love me in return but a wild tidal wave of unstoppable, supernatural, unconditional love. And this, dear friend, listening, I am sure of. If we as people are not secure in our belonging in the family of God, the way God has uniquely made us, the weakness and untidiness of our humanity, 
the passion of his divine choice of us and delight over us and the way he intervened because he could not, would not be without us. If we let that shape our identity, if we soak in that truth and get to know it and repeat it and repeat it over the nonsense that tries to separate and drive us apart from one another, if we deal with our shadows and put whatever shame we have on the table, then we can start looking less natural and more like Jesus. We can change the divisive narrative of not like us to becoming like Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy in his presence in love the scriptures say he predestined us for adoption through Jesus according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the beloved one you and I were supernaturally selected by God the Father. This wasn't a choice based on likeness, on categorical sameness, on bloodline or purity, effort, potential, or goodness. This wasn't survival of the fittest. This was mercy of the greatest. And if not us, the church, to show a new way of belonging and being that we're just fools professing a hope of something supernatural, but putting our hope in just what's natural. And maybe if you, like me, at one time or another, you've idolized the natural order of things when it comes to family belonging or our spiritual formation, then we have to repent, which is just a biblical way of saying that, you know, we need to turn around to change our thinking and the direction of our living. May we be people proudly supernatural in descent, fruitfully multiplying a people made of both ground and glory. And when we arrive at church and we call each other brother or sister, would it mean more than just metaphor? When we welcome people, who don't look like us or share our biology to our dinner tables or to receive us as mother and father, we now know we'll be inviting Jesus himself. And if you're listening today and you are tired of trying to live up to and work for a seat at the table, or if you're at that seat and you're terrified that if you make a mistake or let yourself be messy or ask all those uncomfortable questions, you'll be asked to leave until you can behave yourself. Well, Jesus Christ has a word for you. Romans 5, 8 says, But God demonstrated his own great love for us in this. While we were still sinners, still spitting in his face and talking behind his back, still wanting nothing to do with him. Christ still died for us. He wants you. He has called and chosen you. 
And he has called and chosen every single child and grown up alive on planet Earth, full of purpose and beauty and worthiness. He's not far away. He's closer than the very breath he put in your lungs to breathe. And thank God that God is not a force or a mystical idea or a spiritual concept because Lord knows that none of those things will keep me warm or will be my companion. Only a person in a family can do that. For right in the middle of that story, that might look hopeless, Jesus springs up from a lonely stump. Though a cut-off branch looks destined for the perpetual discard pile, the master gardener's vision, heart, and plan is to gently wrap and tend to and join what is vulnerable to what is stable. God sets the lonely not into systems or organizations or to groups, but Psalm 68.6 says that God sets the lonely in families, just like he was. And we get to call him Father. He does proudly what natural selection could never do, shouting from a manger low, and a cross hung high. I am yours, and you are mine. Thanks for listening in today. I hope you learned something new and felt encouraged along the way. If you are interested in hearing more, subscribe and leave a review so the content and message of this story can be found by other curious listeners. I'd also love to connect with you about any questions to share resources or to hear your grafting story. So send me a message. You can do that online. I'm on Instagram at Nick Fletch or NicoleAshleyFletcher.com. But more than any of that, please share this personally with anyone you know who might need to hear it. I'll be praying for you as you do. I hope to be with you again very soon. And until then, bye for now.